We are uh, so glad to be here together to worship God, to hear from his word, to continue to be inspired by the concept of the strength to love. We uh, last or a couple of weeks ago uh, started off the series and getting into the book of first and second John. Today, our text is going to come from second first uh, John three and four. So if you want to get your Bibles open, first John three and four, we're going to start in chapter three uh, in a little bit and uh, kind of spiral around some of the verses that continue to play on this theme. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the strength to love the light. And in first John one and two, it talked a lot about living in the light, being open about our lives, exposing the sin and the darkness in them and really living a life of openness. Today, we're going to talk about the strength to love without fear, the strength to love without fear. And right off the bat, we want to define our terms. This word fear, which we're going to see in just a, a few moments here in the Bible, is from a, a Greek word that was chosen when the text was originally written. John wrote in the Greek 2,000 years ago. And the word is phobos. Any word that we have in our language that reminds you of that word? Phobias, right? So it makes sense. It's a distressing emotion, uh, usually caused or triggered by an impending danger or evil or pain. And basically a stressful stimulus uh, has an interaction in the brain. It, it releases chemicals to the amygdala, which is that small red dot on the screen right now. And basically when that happens, when this emotion triggers the release of chemicals and your brain starts to process something that isn't right, there are a few options that your brain decides to take. Usually it comes down to these three things. The cortisol starts to pump into the body and typically you're either going to freeze and the, or the glucose starts pumping. Something's a little bit more scary. So you flee or, you, you know, flight. And then, of course, you know the last one, right? The adrenaline's pumping, flows down to the adrenal glands, and you get this signal that the body is ready to go because the other two are not options anymore. So this is typically how we look at the word fear. We have fight or flight is typically what we think about, but there's also sort of a freeze moment where you're just sort of not sure what to do and the brain stalls out, or it realizes that I need to stay totally still to hide myself so that I'm not found by whatever's trying to get me. I want to show you a few pictures of what uh, phobia or phobos looks like, some photos of phobos, and uh, you tell me what you think uh, it is, either freeze, flight, or fight. You guys ready? So these pictures were taken uh, candidly uh, in sort of like a typical haunted house where people were really afraid for a moment, and then the flash of the uh, camera goes off and catches some images. So this is the first one. I typically like the very intense interlocking fingers right there. I don't know who's in more pain. So what do you think? Freeze, uh, flight, or fight? Freeze. Freeze. Okay, some people saying flight. He's already trying to get out of there maybe. All right, how about these guys? <laughs> I mean, the gentleman in the middle doesn't even want to look. I mean, you feel the fear right there, right? They're trying to get out of there. That's flight. He's trying to carry him out. He's like, let's go. All right, how about this nice family? <laughs> Typically, when you've got, you know, children, who do we look to? 
you know, dad or mom, the parent's supposed to lead the way. Dad does not look in any shape ready to lead his troops here. I love that. He's going for the interlocking there, too. <laughs> All right, now, uh, what about this one? Now, I can't speak to the rest of the family, but he looks like he's ready to fight. Look at the hands starting to clench up right there. He's, he's trying to protect. Okay. All right. This is the picture of fear. Uh, how about this couple? No, honey, you go first. Look, what do you think that is? Looks like a freeze, right? Yeah. His dad again, just... And then I'm not so sure about her. <laughs> Looks like she's having a little too much fun. <laughs> and then you have, you know, the guys that come in, you know, tough, looking good, ready to go. I'm not, I'm not going to be scared. What do you think? Uh, flight, fight, freeze. A little bit, little bit of freeze and flight right there. How about this couple? I know karate, right? He's like ready to go. Appreciate that. How about this one? There is a lot happening in this picture. She's looking somewhere else, afraid. He looks pretty upset. And he is in motion. That is pure flight. Last couple. What do you think on that one? Honey, we are out of here. <laughs> oh, and, and last one. <laughs> Nobody judge, because when you're in there, you get scared. You don't know what your face is going to look like. All right, pictures of fear. We have all, uh, we've all been there. And uh, 1 John chapter 4.18, you can read along with me here really sets up our lesson today. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So what we see here in the text is that the Bible is telling us fear is really the opposite of love. The two cannot coexist with one another. One drives out the other. And it gives us some insight as to how this works. It says that fear has to do with punishment. So that's the reason that perfect love drives out fear. Well, how does that make any sense? Well, if you're guilty, then you're scared of getting caught and getting punished. But if you've got nothing to feel guilty about, then there is no fear. There's room for love. 
if we don't understand the power of God's love, then really ultimately we are living in a fear of judgment. That one day we'll be judged for the things that we're guilty of. So there's a fear. But in perfect love, and combined with our last discussion about living in openness, there's nothing to be afraid of. And that perfect love, the love for God, the love for what He's done for us, He's loved us first, and so we love in response to Him, is what drives the fear out of our lives. You know, Dr. Christopher Bader, professor at uh, Chapman University of Sociology, did a large-scale survey and study of fear in America. And he's done it a few years in a row. And in 2016, similar, he got a big group of people and uh, surveyed thousands of people. And uh, it's interesting what has come up. Now, typically when we talk about top fears in America, we hear things about uh, spiders and snakes and things like that. Uh, this is a little bit of a level deeper, a practical study about fears having to do with our everyday lives. Not the things that sort of make us jump, per se, but the things we're really afraid about. And it's interesting to read through them. Uh, Maybe you can see some of the percentages here. Uh, Number two and five, being victim of violence or crime or terror. Uh, Number six and nine, about losing loved ones. And number one, for the last two years in a row, by far over 20% difference, is that people in America are afraid of corruption. They are bothered, they are afraid... They dread the idea that there is corruption at the highest levels of our leadership, of government. And like I said, it was the same thing the year before. Now I say that to set up an understanding of the context of what John was writing about 2,000 years ago. What was a couple of the fears that they dealt with? Interestingly enough, corruption was one of them as well. Let me explain. I'm going to talk about two fears here that they had 2,000 years ago, corruption and rejection. You know, corruption is when you think that something's good and it goes bad. There's something that changes. There's a, there's a, a, a change that happens that shocks you. You thought something was going to be fine. You assumed something and then it became corrupt. It went bad. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8, John tells the church, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. It taps into this concept that something is corrupt. You're potentially going to be tricked. You might get hoodwinked, duped, bamboozled, led to believe one thing, and then something else happens entirely. I remember this happening to me um, in high school. I was a freshman in high school, and I helped my buddy on uh, his uncle's campaign. He was running for a local senate office, and we worked hard and put signs in the ground and went door knocking and made phone calls. And uh, then the big event happened. It was a big convention. And all the candidates were there. And that's when they were going to announce the results of the election. And it was obvious in looking around that we were a smaller operation than some of the other candidates that were there. We had a few people. They had a lot. We had, you know, the signs we could afford, that the signs they could afford. And then I heard about things like rules of campaign financing, hard and soft money, different donations, uh, the incumbents' deep pockets, giving out all kinds of uh, prizes or doing expensive dinners or events that our campaign couldn't afford. And guess what? Our candidate lost. And I was devastated. And I thought, it was fixed. You know, they were buying votes. And it was, I was shocked. I was like, no, our system of government cannot be corrupt. 
And it was all my 14-year-old brain could handle at the time. I don't know what was true and what wasn't in that particular election. But it's that feeling that you get when you've been tricked. In 1 John chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, let's talk about this idea. Uh, First off, again, we're looking at the original text sometimes that the scriptures were written in. Here, the word world comes from this word cosmos. And that means uh, particularly the world we live in, the earthly and fallen world that we call home. Uh, A particular definition that I found in one of the commentaries is that it is an evil humanistic system that dominates the society around us as the hostile order that stands in opposition to God. Not a very pretty picture of our world, right? The devil's domain. Now, Jesus would have been very clear in his teaching that the world is very different than the kingdom of God. You belong to one or the other. You know, some of us, we travel a lot or we were born somewhere else and we have what's called dual citizenship, right? And so you're able to go freely, well, perhaps freely between different countries, depending on, you know, the different rules at the time. Okay, spiritually, Jesus calls us and Paul follows us up later that there is no such thing as spiritual dual citizenship. You either are a citizen of this world or you are a citizen of heaven. You are either an ambassador in a foreign land headed towards home later on or you belong here and this is where your loyalties lie. People got scared 2,000 years ago, scared of being a full citizen of heaven, scared of the commitment that it would take, scared of standing up for their faith, and so their faith got weakened. They started listening to people that were watering down the message or changing the message. They put their faith in the security of the group or the security of the leaders or the security of someone that there was a louder voice at the time and place. Some even started trusting in the Romans, that the empire gave them certain benefits, Kind of like when the exodus happened and they were grumbling, oh, if I could only go back to Egypt where they had good meat, forgetting that they were enslaved. And so they struggle with the same thing. And the seeds of faith in their hearts start eroding because of the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. The fear of corruption sets in. And when governments changed their minds, or a new emperor was chosen, or a leader in the church left or lost their faith or started preaching bogus doctrine, the Christians were caught because their hope had already moved into something other than God. And I think for us, this is a great challenge and gut check to our faith. The modern day disciple of Jesus has to ask where we get our moral cues from. You know, our moral compass is not directed by the politicians and governing bodies of this world. I may not need to say that out loud, but maybe I do. Moderate, liberal, conservative, those are the world's words. Our faith is in Christ and his word, not people, not politics, not leaders, and oh, please, not preachers. Yes, we respect them. Yes, we obey the law. Yes, we're unified with the church. But if all that goes away... We are still faithful to the living God. Regardless of who's in the pulpit or who's in the podium at the political term of the time. Now some of us, I believe, spend way too much time 
and more time reading the latest news from the White House rather than reading the good news of the Lord's house. We have to make a change. We have to think about what we're allowing to corrupt our faith. I'm not saying tune out. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I'm saying remember who you are. Where your identity comes from. Where your loyalties lie. Where your citizenship is and where your time should be spent. Let's not play angry armchair quarterback and spend our time complaining about what we see. That is not becoming of a disciple of Jesus. Instead, you do something. You serve, you help, you lift up, you share some love and good news with the lost around us. And man, I don't know about you, but I can see a lot of lostness these days. Let's not be naive. Let's not put our faith in something that is going to change. People will go corrupt. They will become false teachers. And I know we hate to believe it, but people will hurt us even in the church. So put your hope in this. The incorruptible, unchanging, and steadfast Lord of all, who's always consistent, who is there before, who is there now, and will be in the future. Amen. This is the cosmos. This is the corruption that people are afraid of today as they were 2,000 years ago. The second fear that they were dealing with 2,000 years ago was rejection. An angry world. 1 John 3.13 says, Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If it's one big angry bird world and you feel hate and rejection. And if you look earlier in the text in that same context, it's talking about Abel and uh, his brother Cain. And really the point there is that hate's been around for a long time, even between brothers. You know, John knew what it was like to be hated by the world. And he's relating to them. If you look in this text, uh, this is actually the first and only time that John uses this word Adelphi, which we translate brothers and sisters. He's basically saying, guys, we're family. We are all together as one. We are Adelphi. We are a fraternity of believers. And what he's saying, he's trying to relate to them. He's saying, I get it. I know what it's like to be hated for being different. I know what it's like to be profiled. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to have faith and have people spit on you because of it. It's not easy. And some Christians he was preaching to had gotten to the point where they were surprised that the world hated them. How could they hate me? Just because I believe that I should live a righteous life. And basically in John's language he's saying stop marveling, stop wondering, stop being shocked and stop being surprised that the world hates you. You know, we experience rejection of all different kinds, and I find inspiration in all different places when I look at people who've gone through different levels of rejection. You know, uh, for this young man, things weren't always pretty. Anyone, everyone knows who this is, right? His name is Tom Brady. Zero reaction from the crowd. For those who might have heard of American football... There's a game today. It's called the Super Bowl. He's in it again. But things weren't always so successful. He was on the 0-8 JV football team at his high school that hadn't scored a touchdown all year. And he wasn't even the starting quarterback. He wasn't good enough. He had to make his own highlight tapes at the end of high school and send it to colleges to even get on their radar. 
And eventually he did get their attention. He had some real skills and had done some good things when he started getting some playing time. And eventually the University of Michigan took him. And uh, when he got there, he had high hopes that he would get a lot of playing team. But he was seventh on the depth chart playing for the team. Fighting for playing time. He actually met with sports psychologists to help cope with the anxiety and all the fear that he was feeling about failing and not being able to play the game that he loved. Then he starts playing more, and even then, when he starts to make a name for himself, uh, he's still battling for playing time. He would play for the first quarter, and then two different quarterbacks would play in the second quarter, and then they would make a halftime decision on who was going to play in the second half. But then he started to fight through. And they eventually called him the comeback kid, because he would come back late in games, and he would throw touchdowns, and he would perform well. And eventually he got on the radar of a lot of pro teams, and uh, was really excited to be able to go in the drafts, so he thought. And uh, in the year 2000, he went in the NFL draft. He was lanky. He was thin. They said he wasn't strong enough. His vertical jump was just about over 20 inches. That's many inches less than most NFL quarterbacks. His 40-yard dash was slower than all of the other quarterbacks. Here you can see the breakdown of how bad it really was. He actually wasn't even faster than some 300-pound offensive linemen that were in the NFL Combines at the time. And uh, you can see that he was on the bottom of a lot of the different drills that they did. He was uh, drafted after six other quarterbacks. Six other quarterbacks went ahead of Tom Brady. One of them, who went 150 picks ahead of Brady and ended up never throwing a single yard in a football game. And he ended up, like it says here, drafted 199th out of about 250 people. In round six out of seven rounds. He was rejected at so many levels, high school, college, coming into the pros. He made some huge mistakes, even along the way that some of us are familiar with. And he could have quit at a lot of different times. But he continued and still continues for the love of the game. And you can hate him because he's great, or you can hate him because you have other reasons to hate him. But you got to respect his perseverance. Now, I don't even have time to get into the Atlanta Falcons. I heard there weren't even odds at the beginning of the season that they would even be in the Super Bowl. And here they are. So, I mean, it's amazing. Talk about rejection. But here we go. Tom Brady, what's the other side of this coin? Well, he's a pretty good football player, actually. Four-time Super Bowl champ, 12-time Pro Bowler, three-time Super Bowl MVP, two-time league MVP, made the all-decade team. This guy is good. He is good. My question to you before we read this scripture is, what does rejection do to you? When you don't feel the acceptance of the room, when you feel the rejection, the eyes on you, the naysayers, people counting you off, not communicating belief or vision in you, how does it affect you? Does it cripple you with fear? Does it motivate you? Are you paranoid about it? Is it on your mind a lot? Whether or not people around you accept you for who you are. You know, there are a lot of fears when it comes to following Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I studied the Bible to consider whether or not I was going to become a Christian, I heard about a lot of challenges and things that I would be called to that scared me. 
And there were a lot of things about denying my sinful nature and carrying that cross and following Jesus that were scary and are still scary. But for me, the biggest thing that I was scared of was this idea that I would be called on to be an ambassador for him and to share my faith, to be a fisher of men and of women and to talk to people about my relationship with God in an effort to help them and help them to know God. It scared me half to death. Now you might ask, why would it scare you? I mean, were you, did you have a hard, were you shy? Did you have a hard time speaking? I was on scholarship in college for being a speaker, for being a debater, for arguing, for being someone who could persuade And when they said that, man, to follow Jesus, you would have this challenge to go out and talk to people about your faith. I said, I don't think I can do it. It Scared me. But wait a minute, aren't you used to talking to strangers and people and all that about things that you believe in? Yes, but this is different. I'm a little embarrassed about talking about this personal side of me. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can even talk to people that I do know about it, let alone people I don't know. I don't know if I'll have all the words. I don't know if I'll have all the answers. I'm not a Bible expert. Can anyone relate to these fears? You know, in in my years as a disciple of Jesus, uh, I've been able to overcome a lot of those fears. And sometimes people say, yeah, let's study the Bible. I do want to know more about God. Sometimes people simply say, no, I'm not interested. I've had people curse me out, hang up on me, threaten me. I felt rejection. I'm sure you have too. But I decide that I'm going to continue because of love. Someone loved me enough to ask me. I've got to pay that forward. Now I have the privilege, and a lot of us do, to teach the Bible to others. And we talk about this concept of being fisher for men and for women. It was really neat. The other day we were having a Bible study a couple of days ago at a diner. And uh, this particular young man uh, is studying the Bible. And he went through a really hard time in his life uh, after he became a Christian and, uh, and left, and now he's decided he wants to be back. And uh, he has gone on uh, headlong, just humble, and deciding to make changes in his life, and being open, and loving the light, and really facing his fears. And there we are at the diner, and we started talking about this idea of sharing our faith. And, uh, and so we were talking, and, and he's like, well, it is a little bit hard for me, and I have a fear, and uh, you know, I, I'm not used to that. And, and we were just talking, and as we were talking... Uh, one of the, the gentlemen came by to pour the water in our water cups. And, uh, and, and so we decided to take that opportunity to talk to him about what we were doing. We had the Bible open. So, hey, you know, um, want to share with you what, you what we're doing. And we're part of this church and we're reading the Bible together. And he said, no, I'm in So I don't speak English. And I, I sort of already said like my thing, like, hey, and like a full sentence. And he's smiling and doesn't speak English. And so the guy we're sitting in the Bible with named Sal, he immediately jumps in and starts translating for me so that he can understand he's bilingual. And this, this young man, Javier from Venezuela, who's come here recently, uh, vamos Venezuela, all right, uh, started like, oh, wow, cool. And, and, and Sal's just sharing with him and talking. And so then the, he leaves and, the, you know, and, and I was like, how'd that feel? He goes, wow, that was great. Like, is that what you were talking about? Yeah, that's what I was talking about. And then on the way out, he goes, oh, the other lady, we should talk to her too. So on the, on the way out, he talked to Tanya, and, and Tanya's like, oh, yeah. And of course, she spoke Spanish too, so they start speaking Spanish, and I'm not getting everything, but she, he's translating me. Uh, she said she would be delighted to come to church and study the Bible. And in fact, she's been wondering about the Bible and wants someone to teach it to her. So we walk out of the restaurant, and Sal goes, I'm going to try that tomorrow. 
pretty awesome. In John chapter 5, verse 41 through 44, I don't have all the text on the page here, but if you're looking at it with me, it says, I do not accept glory from human beings. This is Jesus talking, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He is challenging the people to have love in their hearts for God. So much so, look at verse, well, 43 is not there, but it says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept them. See, you don't accept me, Jesus, saying I'm from God. But if someone else comes in with some authority and persuasion, you accept them. Oh, they must be right. Hey, it's in the news. Hey, that person said it. Hey, a lot of people follow them on Facebook. It must be true. In verse 44, Jesus says, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Let's not be worried about getting acceptance from one another. We worry way too much. It dominates us. It takes up hours of our day. We engage in social media simply sometimes to attract and get as much attention as we can. It's filling a hole that simply won't fill. It's a hole that only God can fill. It's a hole only the security of the Lord and the love from Him and for Him can fill up completely. And it's no wonder that sometimes we get addicted to this attention-getting behavior that we go back for more and more like an addiction because we keep trying to fill the hole that doesn't get filled. Seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. In 1 John 3.20, it says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. This idea of fear, this concept of fear, it's a construct. It's an oil spill of emotion. It's something that's in us that helps us because, hey, we need to be afraid of the fire or else we're going to get burned from the fire. It's there for a reason, but we cannot give it too much power. Fear is good as in respect, but as in dread and paranoia corrodes our faith. It says here, God's already won the battle. He's already greater. He's bigger than our fears. You know, the heart may be deceitful, The heart is untrustworthy, but God can be trusted. And in 1 John 4, 4, it says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That one in the cosmos, the devil's handiwork, the devil's domain. God's won against him already. So we just got to decide where to put our loyalties. And he gives us victory over the worst that life can throw at us. I often think of David facing Goliath on the battlefield and I look for fear. Is he afraid? Sometimes I can't tell. Other times he may. He doesn't look afraid at all. He's like ready to go. He's even talking trash to the giant. It's amazing because if you look at the past, with God's help, he defeated a bear and a lion. I think God showed him that I'm with you. We can conquer this together. So as the world ramped up its challenges, David knew that God would be there for him. And every time we face a fear, we can cross it off the list as something that's not going to dominate us anymore. Because really, sometimes the worst kind of fear is a fear of fear itself. It's the unknown. It's the thing behind door number three that we just don't want to face, so we avoid it at all costs. But when we face it, it opens that door. It's amazing how we don't allow it to have power over us any longer. 
In his collection of sermons, The Strength to Love, Martin Luther King Jr. says, Courage faces fear and thereby masters it. But I don't know about you, but I start thinking about this idea of fear. and I have fears. I have fears that something's going to happen to someone I love. You know, you never know. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. And like Kevin's story that Al shared about earlier, such a tragedy. This man, this, this healthy man, athletic man, is out there playing pickleball on the tennis court with his friends and just drops. Now he's gone. And I fear that. I fear losing people that I love the most. So my question is, what happens when our worst fears come true? Is God or love of God strong enough to sustain us? How can we go on when the terrible does happen? And I want to show a video to you of an example that might help answer that question. Emily loved mornings. She loved making art. Emily loved being fancy. December 2012, Robbie and I, for Christmas for the girls, were going to transform this little crawl space into a playroom. Emily got the idea to give to children who didn't have toys. She went into her room with a box and began to fill the whole thing up with toys. This became her last project. After December 14th and the tragedy at Sandy Hook, the crawl space became very painful to even acknowledge never to have seen her face light up with excitement. It was too hard. Every time I'd see the box, I couldn't bring myself to do anything with it. It served as a painful reminder that there was this loss of one of the most giving and selfless people I had ever met. It's hard to imagine a world that didn't have that goodness and that selflessness in it. We received a box from the police of Emily's clothing that she was wearing. I had to see how she was hurt. And that pain is indescribable. I felt so consumed with how evil can be so powerful and that evil won. One day, the oil truck just showed up. I never called for our oil tank to be filled. This kindness, given quietly from a family I hardly knew, was one of so many. The letters started to pour in. In these letters, over and over, were accounts of the power of God's love. There was an overwhelming response from millions of people, well-wishers, people praying for us, people sending us things. I truly started to feel this obvious strength and power that lifted me, that lifted my family. It was time to finish what she wanted done.
where was your God when this happened? Why didn't he stop it? God allowed others to kill his son. He allows for us all to make our own choices, good and bad, because that's the only way good can be in us is if we freely choose it over all else. Evil didn't win that day. We'll carry on that love like she had. It's quiet. It's not on the news. It takes effort to find. But what I've realized through all this is how strong and how big God's love really is. No uh, parent should have to go through that. But I also know that even some in our own fellowship have experienced losing a child. And how do you get through that? And when you hear mom sharing, you hear her processing this pain and trying to face those fears, trying to get through it. And when the worst fears come true, we lose, we grieve, we hurt, but you're still there. And you're trying to figure out how to move forward, if that's even possible. And somehow she found the strength to love. Martin Luther King said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. She didn't multiply hate. She didn't seek revenge. She started loving more than she had before. She gave more. She served more. She did whatever she could to help other children. Perfect love drives out the fear of what the worst can do. And I love what she said at the end. Her God was bigger than her fears. It's an inspiring story. And it reminds us of the ultimate parent. And that's God the Father who lost his own child. It says in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. This is a true definition of love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. You know, laying down our lives might mean being willing to give it up. Yes. But it also means laying down our time, our energy, our talent, our money, our creativity, whatever it takes to serve. Because that's what God did for us. I pray we all walk out of here deciding love over fear. All of us probably have many fears that we could list. Probably all 10 of those fears that we saw in that list earlier. I'd like us to choose one. Let's focus on one in our time of communion and decision making today. One fear, maybe something you're avoiding, something you're afraid of. And let's pray and decide on how best to face it. Let's not let it dominate us. Let's not let it be the unknown thing that makes us feel paranoid and of practicing avoidance behavior or procrastination and waiting for something to happen. Let's do something about it. Let's not live in fear. Let's live the way Jesus lived. What is that? He faced his fears. Even at the worst time, facing a terrible death, he showed us an example of how to get through it. In 1 John 4, 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. May we have the strength to love without fear. Let's bow our heads and pray for the communion.
Father, we have fears in our life. Fears that we're thinking about right now. A fear of being exposed, a fear of getting caught, a fear of consequences, fear of rejection, the fear of our world bearing down on us, making rules that we can't abide by, potentially putting us against our peers, making us stand out. Father, we have all kinds of fears. And Lord, we know that you know the fears that we battle with. And so we ask at this time that you will give us the faith to face our fears, that we will choose love over fear, that we will choose the way that Jesus did, that the love for the many outweighed the fear of the one. God, we ask that you will move powerfully in our hearts right now as we remember the blood that was spilled, the body that hung on a cross for our sins so that we could be here right now and know and experience and be grateful for the grace that you paid for. God, I ask that we all can make a decision today that's applied to our life. Practical. Love over fear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.